Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, we are delighted to feature Simon Toring on the show. Simon is a distinguished professional with a multifaceted background in the field of online retail. He is the co-founder of Cube Asia, a market insights organization specializing in online retail within Southeast Asia. Cube Asia is dedicated to assisting brands, retail companies, and investors in achieving profitable growth by providing them with more recent, granular, and reliable data and insights about their online sales channels. Simon has also worked as the Director of Omnichannel Innovations for Southeast Asia for Sephora, the world's leading beauty and cosmetics retailer and regional head of SEO, influencer marketing, and content marketing for Luxola. These roles further enhance his understanding of the intricacies and dynamics of the online retail landscape. In our conversation with Simon today, we get valuable insights into his experience working at Luxola and explain the disruption in the cosmetics market with the emergence of strong local and cross-border brands. We also discuss the major e-commerce platforms in the region, including Lazada, Shopee, and TikTok Shop, with TikTok Shop emerging as a legitimate challenger. Simon predicts the need for TikTok Shop to expand into other categories and discusses the potential risks and challenges it may face. Our conversation also touches on the formation and vision of CubeAsia, which aims to fill the gap in the market for accurate, reliable, and actionable data for brands and retailers in the region. Enjoy. At the regional level, again, at single country, there is more nuance, but at the regional level, it has really been a game of Shopee versus Lazada the last like five years. There hasn't been a serious third player up until now. TikTok has obviously been huge in the region for a couple of years as an entertainment or social content platform. And then at the beginning of 2022, they started slowly launching e-commerce features, first in Indonesia and then in the other countries. There was not a lot of attention paid to it in the beginning. I was working with my co-founder full-time on e-commerce, market data and research all the way back to the beginning of 2022. And we didn't even start to think about or see TikTok for real until well into the summer. But then something like we just started to see it in the numbers. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Todd. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to, uh, to join the podcast. All right. Great to have you. Now, as we always ask, where are you in the world today that we are recording you from? So I am at my home in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Uh, and I don't spend too much time here. Uh, but uh, this week, I'm back home and it feels great. 
That's nice. I'm going to call it KL mm-hmm. from this point forward because Kuala Lumpur, sometimes it trips me up. So <laughs> I'm going to go with KL for those of you listening. Uh, you spent much of your career paths in parts of Southeast Asia, including KL, Singapore, Jakarta, Bangkok. What brought you? What's the backstory to how you ended up in that part of the world? Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could say there was some big uh, master plan to it, but it was it was really a coincidence. Um, I was just out of high school. Um, I'd sold my little uh, my little business. I was looking for the next thing, and I was enrolled in uh, uh, actually in economics to study economics back in Denmark. Um, and then I got an offer through LinkedIn to come and join uh, a venture builder in Malaysia of all places as an intern. And uh, that was supposed to be six months, uh, and turned out to be well. Now, 10, 11 years, haven't really made it back. So that was the start. And then everything just took, you know, step by step, uh, serendipitously yes. since then. I'm familiar. You and I were chatting offline a little bit about how nobody ends up in Asia on purpose <laughs> if they're not from there. Um, it's remarkable. And even if, you know, just down the streets doing business everywhere we go, we talk to so many people that are living and working and raising kids there. And um, how did you end up here? And there was no master plan. <laughs> uh, you just ended up there. And I, I just love that, that, uh, that now in, in the day and age that we live, you can just end up pretty much anywhere in the world and make it go and love it. And I'm sure you're loving it uh, everywhere in Southeast Asia, especially KL. Um, I've never actually been there. I've been through the airport, but I've never been there. But uh, I, I, I just... The, the pictures of all my friends that are there, uh, it seems amazing to be there. So, um, so I want to start with talking about your work at Luxola. Um, online beauty retail in APAC, um, and then it was acquired by Sephora. Tell us a little bit about how you went through that, what you were doing, and what it was like to go through that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Luxola was a um, kind of a, a multi-brand e-commerce for for beauty products started by an American entrepreneur in Singapore back in I think late 2011 and I joined the business at the end of 2013 after my time uh, during that internship in KL um, and uh, I didn't know anything about the beauty space I knew a little bit about e-commerce but nothing about beauty um, and it was just a wonderful time to build that business and what that business really was in my in my view, was an arbitrage on um, what beauty products were available domestically in the markets versus what products were consumers really longing to to buy and to try. Uh, because one one sort of very common behavior set back then that I didn't know about was that um, you know people from most Southeast Asian countries, if they went to Europe or the U.S. or Australia, or whatever, they would bring an extra suitcase. Or at least, uh, you know, save extra space in their suitcase to bring back products for themselves and their friends and their family of brands that were just not available in the markets. And uh, what Luxola was uh, uh, exploiting well um, was to go to those brands. And they, they were not your L'Oreal's and Estee Lauder's. They were sort of the next set of indie brands and upcoming brands from the US or from Canada or Australia or Europe or whatever. Uh, so Luxola went to them and basically said, you know, there's this thing called Southeast Asia. 
it's a big mess for you to go there on your own because you'll need to comply with FDA requirements in each individual country. But if you go with us, we can just import into Singapore and then we can drop ship into every country in Southeast Asia due to some regulation. And that meant suddenly we were bringing to market these brands that had not really been available to consumers freely before, and that turned out to work really well. Um, so that was that was the start of it. Um, and then obviously it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and became really the backbone of Sephora's e-commerce in, um, in Southeast Asia. Now you're at Sephora. E-commerce starts to boom. How are you navigating that tremendous growth in e-commerce uh, yourself? Uh, the work that you do and for Sephora? In a sense, uh, we didn't know it at the time, right? But it was, you know, 12, tw- 2012 to 14, I think, was really when the party got going. Um, I think a lot of the fire was stoked by Rocket Internet's um, uh, investments in the region. So they started things like Lazada, which is now very big, um, Salora. Uh, many other e-commerce kind of copycat business models from the West. They started them and rolled them out across the region. Um, for me, it was very ex- it was a super exciting time. I thought that we were, I thought that we at Sephora were right at the at the center of it all because the business was doing really well. Um, certainly supported by a very. Uh, um, innovative and forward-looking leadership like there was there was there were leaders in that business that really saw that trend and wanted to invest heavily in it um that has turned out to be a great a great call now but i think what's interesting is for, for us it looked like we were right at the center of it but we were in a sense in the periphery because i would say 80 90 percent of the growth came from the mass market and sephora didn't see that but it was just being in the periphery just having exposure to the prestige market and sort of the upper end of the mass market was 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 plenty. Um, so it was only later when I had a chance to step a bit away from Sephora and look at e-commerce as a whole, which is kind of what I do now, that I saw, wow, prestige is like, you know, a few percent of a few percent, right? Um, and it looked big to us, but then there is just, there's so much more out there. Give us a bit of a breakdown on mass of the entire cosmetic sector in Southeast Asia. Uh, maybe talk yeah. about what are the most successful brands. And then maybe let's cap that off with how important online retail is for the beauty sector. Yeah, so so I, I think the percentage of mass, and then I think a very uh, typical beauty industry term is mastiche, which is kind of like when you can't decide if you're up or down, that's in the middle, and then prestige. That that split differs greatly by country. Um, but one, the markets across Southeast Asia are still predominantly mass. Um, there are some that have a little bit higher exposure to prestige than you would guess from looking at their GDP. So, for example, Thailand has uh, just a bigger prestige market than they should have on paper for various reasons. But in general, it is predominantly a mass market. I don't know if this is still the case, but I remember a couple of years ago, probably 2018, 19, I remember seeing a figure that the prestige beauty market of Australia, which has, what, 22, 23 million uh, population, is bigger than that of Southeast Asia combined, uh, just to put things into perspective, right? So it's still uh, predominantly mass. Uh, Inside of that market, there is a massive, massive uh, uh, disruption going on at the moment. Um, The first uh, uh, chapter 
of uh, beauty e-commerce in Southeast Asia was was really mostly uh, foreign brands. Um, so your L'Oreal's, Estee Lauder, Shiseido, Amore Pacific, and so on, like big corporate groups that hold several brands, uh, they went in first and 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 did well. And then what we started to see was more and more emergence of of local brands. Um, and those local brands in the beginning were generally quite bad. Um, you know, everything from branding to formulations, packaging, marketing, they were kind of learning uh, f- from scratch. So not a huge threat. And like if you went and met one of these big brand groups back then, they wouldn't even they wouldn't even really care about this local competition. Now that has changed a lot. So there is one, the emergence of very strong local brands. In markets like Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, if we look at what are the biggest brands right now, that, that many of them are local. And then there's also the emergence of um, um, what is typically called cross-border brands. So um, these are also foreign, but they are more typically from Asia than they are from the West. Um, most of them are from China. Uh, some of them are openly Chinese. Others are a little bit more uh, um, using, let's call it, international branding, um, uh, but are super present. And 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 those brands um, are, for instance, uh, uh, you would find several of them, several of them in the top five of beauty brands in Indonesia, uh, wow. for instance. Wow. Um, so that's 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 really changed a lot. And just generally, the importance of uh, online yeah. retail for the beauty sector. Yeah, uh, it, well, it is it is very important. Uh, um, beauty is uh, one of the categories in uh, Southeast Asia e-commerce that has the highest uh, penetration. Uh, well, highest penetration to e-commerce. It doesn't mean that beauty is the largest e-commerce category. It right. just means that the biggest proportion of total beauty spending is online. Um, so it's not uncommon to see brands having 30, 40, 50% uh, e-commerce contribution now. Um, e-commerce is also where this new generation of challenger brands and local uh, insurgent brands have, in a sense, been born. They are now moving into more uh, omni-channel distribution, uh, drug stores, own boutiques, things like that. But they were born online. That's what they know best. Uh, and so they are very, very good at that. Um, and, and now with the emergence of new cha- new channels like TikTok Shop, which is a, 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 will be the most important story uh, for beauty e-commerce in the next year or two, um, they are just they're leapfrogging further uh, because the large brand groups are having a very hard time uh, 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 really getting the commercial strategy for those for that channel uh, uh, completely right. I mean, in a way, I can I can see where the big brands are coming from. There's a difference between somebody who speaks a language fluently and then there's somebody who speaks it natively, right? The bigger, more established, they might end up being able to speak e-commerce fluently. But the challengers, they speak it natively. This is where they were born. They are probably offline retail, I don't know, semi-fluent. That's the benefit of of the platforms. You get the data, you can test, you could trial, you can A-B test, you can do all kinds of things. And you can learn and grow so quickly. You can be so competitive so fast simply because of the ability to pivot and iterate so quickly. Just such a low investment uh, to learn so much. So definitely um, threatening. I'm curious, I mean, would you maybe attribute that penetration of, of e-commerce or online uh, retail for the beauty sector to just 
like let's say you know, price points logistically where you know, smaller packages i'm assuming trust in people being able to purchase something online versus something they need to touch or feel or something else i mean where is the attribution do you think for the beauty sector to be so successful in online retail yeah that's a, that's um that's a great question i think it's a combination of factors but it certainly includes so the price points are nice that they're, they're not they're, it's not like buying an iphone um uh, where it's you know thousands of dollars um uh, so i think the 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 worries about being conned or scammed are there but are not a you know a deal breaker um it's also a category where <clears throat> most purchases are branded so versus fashion or something like that where uh, uh it's it's just you have branded goods you have unbranded goods too in beauty most of the stuff is branded which means there's also a lot of replenishment missions and there's a lot of shopping missions where you are frankly just looking to buy what someone has recommended to you whether it is a friend or an influencer so it is a category that lends itself really well to search um, um and i think in, in that sense uh, e-commerce is quite nice because if, if you can find what you're looking for and you trust the seller and the platform where you're buying it from, all right, wh- why not try? Um, so I, I think it's that. And then it just it happens to be that the brand formation, um, uh, there's been a lot of new challenger brands coming onto the scene. Um, and for whatever reason, they have found that it made most sense for them to start online. Um, uh, if I had to guess, I think it's because online you you are not uh, you're not so beholden to your distribution partners. Typically in beauty, uh, when you start a brand and you find a bit of growth, it is a bit of a deal with the devil when you go and speak to Watson's or Guardian or Sephora, whoever it is, who say we will propel your sales, but we will also take a good chunk in margin, right? Uh, and and you're going to play by our rules. It's Costco. And you're going to have very onerous returns clauses and stuff like that. So I can imagine uh, for these entrepreneurs that have started brands, they've gone, hmm, why would I want to give, I don't know, uh, a, a lot of percent to uh, to a distribution partner if I can just go and sell on Shopee or Lazada? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I just think of this data point that I'm like interested to find out on, on, uh, repeat, uh, business. I mean, if you're textiles, you don't really find a shirt you like and then buy that same shirt for five years in a row. Whereas I, I, I'll be honest, I've been wearing Chanel blue for a decade. I just love it. Other people seem to like it. Um, I don't have time to go sniffing for a few hours and, you know, coffee bean and then the next one and coffee, you know, so, uh, I, I just, you know, and it's, and then I know, I know what I want. I know the shade, the color, the whatever, you know, so, and it's, and it's just easier to do it online then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of the things that the leadership of Sephora saw early on, um, where I was, you know, I was so lucky to be at the right place at the right time to lead Omnichannel for Sephora in Southeast Asia for a few years, but the vision came from from my leaders, right? And and it was it was just very clear that they really understood that beauty is a combination of so many different shopping missions, and for some of them, you want it to be a candy store, which the 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 physical stores are very good for, uh, super discovery focused. 
And then for others, what you want is, is, is to make replenishment very simple or to make comparison of products very simple. And e-commerce just lends itself really well to that. And I still think to this day that Sephora has done a really good job at uh, articulating that kind of that omni-channel customer engagement mode. Uh, where it's, I think we used to call it browse, buy, ask, exchange where you want. That was the that was the that was the label. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's so many things that I even want to like returns and uh, the impact on returns and you know the different verticals or sectors and you know. But anyway, but we're not going to do that. We're going to move on. I want to get to the platforms, the e-commerce platforms. So, you know, we've 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 dallied in talking about the platforms out there. But give us from you from your point of view, talk about the growth of e-commerce in the region and uh, call out the the, the biggest, uh, best, largest e-commerce platforms in Southeast Asia. OK, so so I, I, at a high level um, from let's call it 2013, 14 and up until last year. E-commerce was uh, growing in Southeast Asia at a compounded annual growth rate of about 60%. Over the COVID years, it then went all the way up to 100%. And, um, and that was the gold rush, right? So, so brands, um, established brands, um, basically just had to, one, decide that they were okay to do e-commerce. And then two, put their products on one of the large platforms that were driving most of the growth. So this was first Lazada as the first sort of real regional player. Then it became Shopee, which was around 2015-16, which became another big regional player. Then there has been the emergence of big players in some of the individual countries like uh, Tokopedia in Indonesia, for instance. And then... More recently, like in the last six, nine months, that's when we've started to see um, TikTok shop as well. I'll, I'll come back to that. But just to complete the point on 60% compounded annual growth up until around last year. Then from this year onwards, it's a very different picture. So if we look at what we foresee being the growth path for the next five, six years, it's more going to be somewhere between 15 and 20%. So in a way, the the uh, per, per year. So the the... Those 60%, 80% growth years, we believe, are are over. E-commerce has just become so big now that, that it's no longer sort of growing into its natural size. Now, uh, it will be a different game. Uh, that has huge implications for how brands think about uh, uh, e-commerce and think about their P&L. Um, uh, but that's, the, we believe, basically, that we're starting kind of the we have started the second era in a sense of more steady growth. Now back to the channel landscape. So who are the big players? It is indeed Lazada, Shopee, and now increasingly TikTok shop as kind of the third horseman across the region. Um, I, I said Lazada first and Shopee second. Shopee is the bigger one. So you could say Shopee number one, Lazada number two, and then increasingly TikTok shop as, as, a, as a number three, particularly in beauty and fashion. Uh, where they have the biggest uh, the biggest exposure. After that, it's it's a there are some look like single market players. There are bits and pieces of 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 other special uh, specialized e commerce. But if if you are new to the region and bringing a new product to market, there's really no reason to spend a single minute outside of those three platforms. Like just you could spend the next five years getting them right and then, you know, worry about the rest afterwards. That's really where the party is at. We've talked about Lazada and, and Shopee quite a bit. Can you, in your opinion, just quickly 
maybe a minute or two. Break down just what the differences between the two are. Um, I think it won't even take a minute. Um, the positioning of Lazada has generally been slightly higher than the position of Shopee. Shopee wanted everyone to buy anything. Uh, domestic, uh, cross-border, whatever. And for that reason, Shopee has the biggest reach and has the largest consumer base. Um, what is, though, happening, uh, especially in the last six to nine months, is that Lazada, the way that they... like They, they did two things to get that, let's say, higher positioning. Um, one, they were much more intentional around partnering closely with brands that have higher market assortment. Um, they knew and understood what those brands needed. They needed close partnership, account management, um, assurance that your your products are not going to show up next to fake products, you know, that kind of stuff. So they were good at that, which Shopee just didn't really worry too much about uh, on it uh, during their rise. The other thing was that Lazada generally did not... Um, did not endorse or support the very bottom of the categories. So um, in beauty, for example, the very cheap cross-border brands, Lazada was perhaps tolerating them, but never really promoting them. That has changed in the last, yeah, certainly in the last year. And so from, from where I sit, what it looks like is basically Shopee and Lazada becoming more and more the same. Uh, to a point now where I wouldn't really worry too much about differentiating my go-to-market uh, strategies on on the two. They are starting to look more and more homogenous to me. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Maybe not a fair question, but are there differences in um, vertical, let's call it ownership? Is one the king of other vert- you know, of a vertical, whereas, you know, the other has a king in something else? And I'm always interested because... How you look at success can change. You can look at activity. Um, you can look at cart size. Uh, you can just look at, at revenues or actual profitability. Uh, and that changes on where when you're at the low end, high, high, high volume, but you may have ha- may have low revenues. Um, but then you may have high profitability. Uh, so can you talk about the difference between them down there in those regards? Yeah, it's not too different, to be honest. And there's also variance between the markets. Um, we cannot see Lazada's profitability um, because it is, it's so kind of wrapped into the whole Alibaba uh, holding structure. Um, Shopee famously has become a little bit uh, 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 profitable in Q1. It will now be very interesting to see how that develops in the next coming quarters because of the threat of TikTok shop Um, uh, that will maybe not allow them to carry on being uh, so prudent financially. So I think we we will kind of see what shakes out when the... uh, uh, when the next sets of quarterly results are, are, are reported, but no, they are not that different. Um, I would say in some individual markets, they do have more ownership of a certain category, but no, I think as a whole, they are more similar than they are different. And I think it's a big misperception in the market. There's a, a lot of the brands that we work with would say, Lazada, there's one shopper, and then Shopee is a very different shopper, and so I need very different strategies. And we're like, well, eight of the t- eight of eight of ten customers overlap between the two. So, like, how different is it really? Maybe a a, a, a last question. 
on those two before we start, you know, start talking a little bit deeper about TikTok. Um, just generally speaking, that e-commerce ecosystem, what, is it fair to ask you to compare, given that you're so knowledgeable about Southeast Asia, and I don't want to assume that you uh, know as much about what happens in the West, but could I ask for a bit of uh, a comparison from Southeast Asia to maybe the U.S. to maybe China, just on UI, UX, interface, brand strategy, delivery times, penetration, that kind of stuff. Southeast Asia is much more aligned to China. Okay. Um, so I think actually China is an excellent reference point. Um, uh, Lazada got its UI from Tmall. Shopee has a lot of the same... Uh, TikTok shop is a complete, more or less complete duplication or clone of the e-commerce parts of Douyin. Um, so I think that's where we look to. Comparisons to the West, um, I think it's more different than it is the same. Uh, so, for example, just the uh, presence of brand.com, the presence of large kind of um, single category e-commerce destinations, something like Salando or ASOS. Uh, it's it's just not huge. It is really a game of Shopee, Lazada, and TikTok shop. Uh, 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 and then these these local local contenders. Um, and I, I, for me, it, it feels much more similar to, uh, to China. One of the things, and I told you before, and listeners know, have been listening, I have a background in UPS, so I'm a bit of a logistics fanboys. So yes, China and the US are fascinating to me, but they are gifted. They are, they have population distribution plus geography uh, parameters and perimeters that are just almost unfair to compare others to. You, you, you can't compare even in the logistical realm, which impacts everything else. Let's be honest. Uh, you can't like Southeast Asia. Unfortunately, I mean, they don't get to compare to anybody because it's crazy different over there. Uh, boats and planes, and you know, planes, trains, and automobiles. Um, you know, all all mm -hmm. the time there. So yes, um, we don't need to comment on that. But it is definitely worth reminding everybody that there is a severe unfair advantage with you know population distribution and and just almost this 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 rectangle of of or circular rectangle if that's such a thing of the way china and, and the u.s are built so uh okay we'll move on from that um okay um financial time story uh you were quoted uh the emergence of tiktok as an e-commerce player in southeast asia um obviously tiktok shop what moves is tiktok making in the region um and is it a legitimate uh, challenger which we already know that it is but uh talk about more in depth what tiktok is doing it's it's really quite fascinating so there at the regional level again at single country there is more nuance but at the regional level it has really been a game of shopee versus lazada the last like 5 years there hasn't been a serious third player up until now so uh, TikTok has obviously been huge in the region for a couple of years as an entertainment or social content platform. Uh, and then at the beginning of 2022, they started slowly launching e-commerce features, first in Indonesia and then in the other countries. And I think um, there, was not of a, there was not a lot of attention paid to it in the beginning. 
Like I, I was working with my co-founder full time on e-commerce uh, market data and research all the way back to the beginning of 2022, and we didn't even start to think about or see TikTok for real, you know, until well into the summer. But then something like we just started to see it in the numbers, like uh, particularly in beauty and fashion, uh, just a very rapid rise of uh, of sales. Uh, the uh, emergence of a new set of winning brands. So brands making, uh, in in some instances, tens of millions of dollars annualized sales, right, on this platform that were not really super famous from the platforms that we had seen before. So they might be like ranked 36 in fragrance on Shopee. And then on TikTok, they're number one and number two, right? So like, ha, huh, this is interesting. Um, and then I think crucially what we saw was the first thing TikTok did was just sort of obvious, which was to integrate payment into the social experience. And that's something where Meta or the whole, yeah, Facebook, Instagram, that whole ecosystem had really been fumbling the ball in an almost unimaginable degree. Like they've been talking about doing this for like five years and it's all stayed with some small pilot programs. Like it's incredible that they didn't manage to do it. So TikTok just came and did that. And so I think a certain share of the market shifted just because now consumers could very easily pay after looking at a live stream or uh, watching a piece of content or something like that. But then very interestingly, we started to see TikTok really behaving like an e-commerce company, building huge account management teams, uh, co-funding marketing activities with the brands, paying for free shipping subsidies, hosting double-day mega campaigns. And we were like, wait a second, we haven't seen this kind of player before that is starting from the social part of social commerce and then really taking the commerce part seriously as well. And I think that combination has turned out to be uh, lethal uh, and and to work really really well. So across the uh, 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 across Southeast Asia, you know, we, we believe the the GMV for last year, the sales for last year was over four billion dollars. About two point five of that coming from Indonesia, so a pretty significant volume already. Um, that entire twenty twenty two volume, we believe, was exceeded in the first quarter of this year. So it's growing very, very fast. And I think for this year across Southeast Asia, I wouldn't be surprised if TikTok shop ends up doing somewhere between 13 and 18 billion uh, US dollars of, of trade. Uh, so it's just become a massive uh, force very quickly in categories like fashion and beauty. It has taken share from Shopee. It has taken share from Lazada. Um, and it's really shaking up that whole that whole uh, uh, marketplace, which is 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 fascinating and very good for brands and very good for consumers. So I'm I'm interested to ask further about this from the fact that Lazada and Shopee are mostly platforms, but TikTok has the influencers, and having that kind of you know ammunition coming into the game here um, gives you a lot of advantages. And I'm wondering also if that either restricts the verticals that you can really grow in fast, although it gives you a super unfair advantage to really grow fast in articles where influencers are so 
important. Actually, for that Financial Times piece, I think one of the interesting topics that we discussed was what can go wrong. Because right now, and I'm I'm also hyping up TikTok Shop. I mean, you can you can hear that, but I think it has to be a balanced. It has to be a balanced uh, discussion, and um, a lot of these amazing growth rates or projections that we have kind of assume that nothing will go wrong. And I I I don't know about you, but I've never tried being in a business where nothing goes wrong. And so some of the things that we need to see in order to make sense of these large forecasts is indeed, for example, TikTok shop needs to prove that it can generate significant volume outside of beauty and fashion. Beauty and fashion is like 70, 75% of the, 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 the volume on, on the platform now. And those categories, they lend themselves very well to be sold in a live stream or a content adjacent setting, right? Um, and that is indeed where the influencers are and where TikTok is benefiting so much from the fact that people are opening up the app. They don't need to be paid to open up the app, right? Like, or that, that there's no need for an ad to drive people to open the, uh, the app. They do that by themselves uh, for several hours a day. Um, so I think that is a big question mark. Um, we are starting to see some inklings of FMCG, home and office categories also doing well, for, for instance, in Indonesia. Um, you can you can sell a lot of toothpaste on TikTok shop in Indonesia, for example, or electric toothbrushes. Uh, but it is not, it's not yet a, uh, it's not yet a given and it could very well turn out that they're going to have a much harder time in, in, in those other categories. And those other categories are so important to get to the next level of growth because you, you just cannot get to those high GMV figures of Shopee and Lazada if you don't have a good electronics category, if you don't have a good sort of large white goods uh, category. And there's there's barely any of that so far. You you would really you would not buy a Samsung smartphone on TikTok Shop right now. There's probably like four people who've done it, so they've used it in an example for you know slide deck somewhere. But that's not the norm. Um, and I think I, I don't know if they can, but I know that it will be much harder for them to do that than it was to conquer beauty and fashion. Okay, one more question before we talk about Cubasia. Have any of the platforms done, maybe they've already done it and done it very well, but I'm not sure because I haven't seen it yet. And that could just be me not seeing it. But going the route of Amazon Basics, where you see everything, you see what's being searched, you see what's already on your platform, you see what the prices are, you know what you could probably get your hands on manufacturing it for and brand it yourself. And yes, the, you know, I, I don't think anybody who's had an Amazon, like anybody, any brand or product that's had an Amazon basics come out against them is very happy about it. Uh, but have you seen any of the platforms there running that model out? The, that's uh, I love that question. The short answer is no. Um, so both Lazada and Shopee have not have not done so, um, but uh, TikTok seems to be starting now, uh, and they have now. I'm forgetting they have like a code name for this project, which is about being you know uh, their their own their own brand group too and sourcing products, uh, and I think that's another potential threat to TikTok's rise is that um, 
for all of their uh, complexities, both Shopee and Lazada have basically grown with a, a very merchant-friendly model. Uh, they are true marketplaces. They are not really interested in being retailers, at least so far. Uh, TikTok seems to be jumping seven steps ahead and doing that already. And I, it might turn out to be very successful for them, but that will certainly be and that, that will be something new. That that's not something that we have seen before. Um, so no, the 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 Amazon Basics uh, comp we 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 don't have in a significant way in Southeast Asia yet. Yeah, because if TikTok does something to piss off their core, which is yeah. a different core than what Lazada and Shopee have. They have to maintain that. They have to take care of a completely different audience. Um, and they're, you know, they've got their customers and their clients, right? They have to, their audience and their content makers. Um, and and they, they, they definitely can't take their eye off the ball with regards to making them happy, which is just very, very different than Lazada and Shopee being able to be kind of locked in, focused on those that bring them revenue. So... And so my my personal opinion is that they they ought to take good care of the existing merchant base first because you know I, as an ex retailer myself you you want a well rounded assortment right and I think it, it, doing Amazon Basics before you have those brands that you are then copying is a bit tough right like you you, you want a destination where people can choose where they can see the Duracell batteries and they can see the amazon basics batteries and then they can decide for themselves but but if duracell is not there yeah like it's it just seems to me like skipping a few steps ahead uh in a sense but but it's i think so far it's a rumor it's a it's a pilot project so perhaps it's a small thing and they will actually come back and do it in earnest in a few years so maybe it's just fine yeah i mean you don't want to really piss off brands and products um, from allowing themselves to be present. Um, but then I also do know that at the end of the day, uh, the only color that matters is green. Um, and if they're, you know, if they're still making, you know, money by being there, then them, so be it uh, as much as they maybe don't like it. So, uh, okay. So let's move on to Cubasia. You are the the co-founder of Cubasia, a market insights company. Um, Tell us a little bit about Cubasia, um, how it was formed, what your what your thesis and, and what your vision is uh, with with you and your co-founder. I don't know how many there are. The co-founder. Yeah, co-founder. Yeah, one. Um, and then uh, tell us about Cubasia in that way. And then start talking to us about what you're seeing, hottest consumer sectors in the region. You know, it's a bit of a softball question for you. But uh, yeah, tell us what you do and what you're seeing. No, of course. Uh, so yeah, I've, I mean, I've spent the last what ten years in in and around e-commerce in Southeast Asia, and um, after leaving Sephora, and I'm still good friends with Sephora. I had wonderful time there, and it's great people. Uh, after I left, I, I wanted to start a startup, and uh, through a windy path, I ended up in consulting, and uh, I met there my now co-founder Sarab, who's a, who's an absolute genius, and uh, he and I bonded uh, um, over. Uh, a problem, which is e-commerce has gotten so big in Southeast Asia. Why is there no good market data? Um, offline retail, you know, best practices, you will, every month you'll be looking at your ranking in certain categories. You'll be looking at which competitors are rising, which ones are, are declining, what kind of assortment is moving, what price changes are happening. 
what is the market size, blah, blah, blah. And uh, we were just not in our consulting context. We would go and try and buy that from market research providers, right? And we just couldn't find anything that we thought was granular accurate enough. So we thought the like the e-commerce is now big enough that there should be this. So there, there should be a market. So perhaps the reason why it doesn't exist is because it can't be done. Maybe it's too difficult, so we, we 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 started very small by trying to to square out like one category on one platform in one market, and we were able to generate some good stuff there, and and that's really what we formed the the, the company around. Uh, so we are only yeah we're less than a year old. Uh, we are now present across Southeast Asia. We work with you know brands, institutional investors, consulting firms to give them clarity on their online selling environment. Um, these brands tend to have great online, like good e-commerce analytics, attribution planning, like attribution for their modeling for their marketing spend, web analytics. They know themselves very well. We help them understand the landscape uh, uh, across Shopee, Lazada, TikTok Shop, Tokopedia, all these kinds of channel, uh, channels. And it's a very tough problem to crack because we hold a, a very high bar on accuracy and and reliability. Uh, uh, but we are taking it just one step at a time, and so far it's 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 been really a wonderful, wonderful ride. So we are we are about eighteen people now on the team, including a wonderful data team, uh, and uh, yeah, producing uh, market sizing, category sizing, competitive environment reports for 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 these different kinds of customers. Um, so so that that's that's what we do. Before I forget, where do people go to get access to everything that you do? Yeah, well, um, cube.asia is a good place to start or, or search for me on LinkedIn. Um, we have taken a growth uh, approach, which is uh, if we have 100 fuel units and we can spend them either on making the data good or making the delivery form amazing, like a beautiful UI or something like that, we're putting all the fuel units on the data. So right now, most of what we do is good old Excel sheets. Uh, which sometimes I think is a little bit. Uh, some of the clients are a bit like, "Wait, what? Is that it?" Uh, but 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 that is what we are focused on right now. We are we we are launching a a self serve platform for all of the the data subscriptions. Actually, I think next month. We've been working on that since January behind the scenes. But uh, for now, I think an easy way to get in touch is either just our website or reach out to me anywhere, and and I would love to uh, to discuss. Okay, awesome. Uh, as I told you before, many of our listeners are, you know, consumer brands considering expansion, really desiring and thirsty for expansion into the region. Um, what would you say if you had a mid-sized American cosmetics brand come to you for some advice on, hey, what is a basic blueprint for success in that region? It's, it's, um, I think, unfortunately, it's not that easy uh, because if we look at what is a brand, right? Like there are some formulations, there is a cost of goods, which informs the price point, and then there's some branding around it. Um, and it's a crowded market already. There are good formulations at good quality on basically all price points in all categories. Um some brands are big enough that they come with some brand recognition already. Those can then leverage that latent knowledge, uh, latent uh, awareness to 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 break into the market. But for any brands 
that are sort of below that bar. Um, I think Southeast Asia can be a wonderful market if the price point is right. So I would say mass, mastiche is where you want to play. And then you should assume that you're rebuilding your brand entirely, which you can do through influencer engagements. There is a pretty good uh, uh, playbook for how to do that. Um, But I've seen uh, uh, many instances of Western brands that come into Southeast Asia almost feeling, all right, now I will give you my amazing brand. I can't, you know, now I will allow you to buy it from me. And then they look at their sales and they go, why is nobody buying my stuff, right? Um, but but I think the price point has to be right. The brand has to be rebuilt unless it's already very big. Um, so I would say it is. it can be a wonderful market, uh, but uh, you want to... You want to really manage your expectations and think about it for the long term. Like just the population size of these markets mean that the 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 opportunities are so great, but most of the dollars are going to be in five or ten years. So the 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 it's it's. I think it comes down to what is the right moment. If you already have some pull from the market, so if for whatever reason consumers are already aware of your brand, go. Go now and leverage that. But if you're starting from a position where it's like, I want to sell there, but the market doesn't really necessarily want me to sell there. I think it's just, it can be it can be a great adventure, but it, it, it should be, they could just go into it with open eyes. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about it on the podcast before about, you know, having to rebuild your brand. Uh, I don't want to scare anybody off. Um you know, it's it's like having that third and fourth kid, okay? I mean, no, you're better at it. You know what's going on. You know, yeah, there's still a baby. Um, you still have to do all the stuff that, that drove you nuts when you had the first kid and the second kid. But you will be a better parent and you will have uh, some efficiencies and some learned skills. Uh, so it is not re-replicating all the costs of building your brand but you will actually have to build a new brand, another brand. Uh, it just won't be as hard or as costly as the first time. There will be hand-me-downs that you will be able to use. Okay, uh, Simon Turing, co-founder of Cube Asia. If you're looking for amazing Southeast market insights and data and you want the steak without all the sizzle, he's the guy to go talk to and cube.asia is the place you want to go. Simon, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Ted. All right. For everybody listening to us on the podcast, don't forget we have the YouTube and the shorts going on at WPIC.co's YouTube channel. For those of you watching us on the video, you can get us auto audio only on all your podcast platforms, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. But for me and everybody at The Negotiation and for Simon, thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, 
please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.